Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Employment Law Matters. This is part two of defending a sex harassment claim. Last week, we covered the employer's statutory defence and what steps you should be taking as an employer. In this episode, you'll learn strategies for preparing a case for tribunal broken down into nine simple steps. But before that, I've got a little bit of an announcement which I'm going to be telling you about at the end of this podcast. I'd also like to share with you this review. A must for HR people regularly dealing with employee relations issues. I look forward to them each week. And that's uh, posted on the iTunes store by Sir Herbert Lemon. Or I suppose it could be Sir Her Bertelmon. But um, whatever your ridiculous iTunes name, please do send me your proper name and address to podcast.danielbarnett.co.uk and I will send you a book on employment law as a thank you for leaving that review. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. During this episode, for ease, I'm going to use the female pronoun to describe the victim of sex harassment. But of course, men can be victims of sex harassment too. Nine points for defending a claim. Number one, have a good investigator. Pick the right person for the job. This is really important. If you're just dealing with a bog standard grievance, the line manager can do it. We all know that. But when it's a complex harassment complaint, you probably need someone with a set of skills that the line manager doesn't possess. You need to have someone who's sensitive yet firm, highly intelligent and articulate so they can produce a reasoned, credible outcome report. Not many people can do that. Now, there is a list of independent HR professionals that I maintain who have experience in conducting this sort of investigation. And it's arranged by city. So wherever you live, assuming it's a decent sized region, there'll be one there for your city. That's if you want to find an outsourced investigator. And you can find that list. We'll put this on the show notes as well at www.members.hrinnercircle.com. Dot co.uk slash list dash of dash recommended dash investigators. Wow, that's a mouthful. www.members.hrinacircle.co.uk slash and then with dashes between each word list of recommended investigators. So number one, have a good investigator. Number two, think about conducting an inquiry. Now this doesn't always work, but sometimes if you ask And again, I'm using the female pronoun. If you ask a woman what she wants, having been sexually harassed, many women will say, I just want it to stop and I don't want it to happen to anybody else. They might be telling the truth. They might not. They might really want an exit package and compensation, but they're embarrassed to say so. But most people who say that are telling the truth. And if you believe them and you're from a larger organisation, one thing to think about doing is to set up an inquiry into the workplace culture, having the complainant as one of the three people on the inquiry to make recommendations as to how you can improve policies, procedures, practices, maybe offer to write up what happened to her as an anonymous case study to use for training. And that sometimes stops litigation dead in its tracks because they'll feel like they've actually achieved something as a result of having raised the harassment allegation. Number three, if the complainant has left the business, sack the harasser 
and offer the complainant her job back. Now, you can only sack the harasser, of course, if you've done an investigation and found him guilty of gross misconduct, or if he's got less than two years employment. By the way, if he's got less than two years employment, there's a, a tiny risk of a reverse sex discrimination claim, but that's really unusual. And if that's the case, if you sack the harasser and offer the complainant her job back, it's a win-win. If she accepts, it cuts her loss of earnings claim dead in its tracks. If she refuses, there's a very credible argument. Won't always win, but it's better than 50-50. There's a very credible argument that she's failed to mitigate her losses. So it's win-win either way. Number four, settle early. Now, some employers take the view it's better to wait until the day before the hearing before making a settlement offer because that way the claimant's going to be under maximum pressure. And it is right that even though an employer feels anger, irritation and resentment at being the respondent in a tribunal claim, the amount of stress, anxiety and pressure that the claimant is under is many, many times greater. It can absorb every moment of their waking life for a year until the tribunal claims actually heard. And an early offer of settlement can often get rid of a claim early if it's a sensible offer. I think that unless there's a good reason not to, early settlement is always a good idea. Reason number one where it might not be a good idea to settle early is where you're 100% convinced that the claim is a complete try-on and you're defending it on principle. Lawyers love principles. We earn most of our income out of your principles. Reason number two is if your company's been settling too many claims and you think you're being taken advantage of by employees just routinely threatening claims to try to get some extra cash. Sometimes it's worth making a policy decision not to settle any further claims. But both those situations should be very, very rare. And absent that, try to settle early. Number five, make admissions early. There are two schools of thought on this. There's my school of thought, which is make admissions in the ET3 where needed and appropriate. And then there's the wrong school of thought, which is deny, 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 deny. Now, the advantage of not making admissions early is very simple. If you make admissions early, you lose the ability to put extra pressure on the claimant by making them think there's more to prove, and consequently, make it more likely they'll settle for a lower amount a bit later on. That's the rationale for never admitting anything. But the downsides of doing that, I think, are much greater. Downside number one, tiny risk, tiny, tiny risk. There's a very small risk of a tribunal saying your denials were unreasonable and therefore you should pay costs. But that very rarely happens. You can probably put that to one side in most cases. The much more significant risk is the tribunal will just lose faith in your credibility and your witness's credibility. And in a he said, she said case, credibility is everything. If the tribunal thinks, well, they denied that, they denied that, they weren't frank with me about that, why should I believe them about that, that and that? If a tribunal thinks that, you're stuck, you've lost. So make admissions early. Number six, apply for a deposit order. Now, it's almost impossible to get a discrimination claim struck out. You just won't be successful unless it's massively, massively out of time or bad in law. For example, the claimant saying, 
you've discriminated against me because I've got ginger hair when ginger hair is not a protected characteristic. But what it is sometimes worth trying to do in a strong enough case is get a deposit order. Deposit orders are granted if an allegation has little reasonable prospect of success. And if you can persuade an employment judge in a preliminary hearing that some or all of the allegations in the ET1 have little reasonable prospect of success, they'll order the claimant to pay money as a condition of being allowed to continue with the claim. And at that point, most claimants drop their cases because they've been told by a judge, I think it's got little chance of success and they don't want to invest money and time continuing. But if they do continue and they lose, they almost automatically then get costs ordered against them. If someone pursues a claim in the face of a deposit order, it's a reversal of the normal no-costs rule in a tribunal, and costs will be awarded against the unsuccessful claimant unless there's an exceptional reason not to award costs. Number seven, instruct a lawyer. Now, in many cases, employers represent themselves, and many HR practitioners are very adept and able at appearing in tribunals. A lot of unfair dismissal cases involve employers representing themselves. But in discrimination and harassment cases, I also think in whistleblowing, trade union, and some other more complex cases, it is usually worth instructing a lawyer simply because of the experience a lawyer can bring to the case. If your HR and you do your own advocacy, do think about using a lawyer in harassment cases because it can add a real layer of value. And if you want to find out a little about using me in discrimination cases, go to www.danielbarnett.co.uk and click on services for HR professionals. And quite apart from the really lovely picture of me that will scream out at you from the page, there's information there on how I can help you defend tribunal claims. Eight, disclosure. Claimants don't often have much to disclose in harassment cases, but you should seek disclosure of their diary, particularly if your policy says, if you think you're being harassed, keep notes. Because if the complainant has kept notes of the harassment, you can be 100% confident they're going to disclose those voluntarily because it's a massive document that's really important to support their case. If they don't disclose notes or diaries voluntarily, it almost certainly means they weren't keeping contemporaneous notes. So get them to commit to that. Seek specific disclosure in a tribunal and get an admission they didn't keep notes or get their diary and show they weren't recording any harassment. Then you can cross-examine them on why they weren't noting these things contemporaneously. It's not the best cross-examination point in the world, granted, but it is nevertheless a decent point. And finally, nine witness statements. If you haven't made admissions in your ET3, do it in witness statements. You don't want admissions to be dragged out in cross-examination because that looks really bad. There's a long article that I've written on LinkedIn a couple of years ago floating around on LinkedIn. You'll have to search for it on how to craft the perfect witness statement. And that's a really good source of information about what should go inside witness statements. 
Thank you for listening. I did say I had a little bit of an announcement, which I'll come to in just a second. But before I do, if you don't subscribe, please do subscribe at www.danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast. And please do leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to these podcasts. And here's what I'd like you to do, please. I have just launched a new set of HR policies for 2020. They are clean, user-friendly, short policies, perfect for the SME, which you can get from my website, www.policies2020.com. They are updated versions of the policies I produced in 2017, plus four new policies, plus two brand new contracts, one for a junior employee, one for a senior employee. If you're a solicitor or an independent HR professional, they come with a license to resell them. So you can resell the contracts to clients, resell the policies to clients, either individually or as a bundle. If you're in-house HR in an SME, they are fabulous to use to either replace existing old-fashioned policies or just as a sense check to make sure all your policies are up to date. And here's what the policies are. I'll just run through the 20 of them. Number one, recruitment. That's new. Holiday, flexible working, equal opportunities, drugs and alcohol, well-being. That's a new policy. Menopause. That's a brand new one. Maternity and family friendly. Homeworking. Also brand new. Social media, harassment and bullying, performance improvement, absence management, grievance, whistleblowing, bribery, data protection and GDPR. That's one I sold through my website about two years ago when GDPR came out for several hundred pounds. It's now part of this package. Modern slavery, disciplinary policy and redundancy policy. As well as those 20 policies, you get the junior employment contract and the senior employee template employment contracts. We also throw in some extra things. So there is a book I've just written and it's just come out this week, a book on changing terms and conditions. We throw that in at policies2020.com to anyone who buys the policies. You get instant access to my full online course on GDPR for HR professionals. You get the full 110 page transcript as a bonus of my Employment Law Masterclass 2019 seminar. And you also get the exclusive Have You Read My Policy t-shirt. Have a look at policies2020.com to see what that looks like. It all comes with a one-year money-back guarantee. If you don't like the policies, if you don't use them, and you find out a year later that it was money poorly spent, just ask for your money back. We'll give it straight back to you. No questions asked. So have a look. www.policies2020.com and let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening. Speak to you next week. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.